Welcome to the Talking Villanova Basketball Podcast presented by Hartford Funds. In each episode, two-time NCAA champion coach Jay Wright chats with figures from across the spectrum of the Nova Nation and beyond. Current players, prominent alums, and national basketball figures are all part of the mix as we honor the 100-plus year history of one of America's most storied college basketball programs. The Talking Villanova Basketball Show, hosted by Jay Wright, originated in 2001. The program, now in its 20th season, shifted from terrestrial radio to the world of podcasts in 2019. This is a production of Villanova Sports Properties in conjunction with Villanova Athletics. Hartford Funds is in its third season as the presenting sponsor of the Talking Villanova Basketball Podcast. We invite you to settle in and enjoy as Coach Wright takes us into today's conversation. Welcome. We're together via Zoom today for the second part of our conversation with the great Villanovan. And Coach, I'll uh, let you take it from here. Thank you, Michael. Um, we're, we're so blessed to have uh, just one of the true legends of, of Villanova University, not just basketball, with us um, for our second podcast. And we're going to really hit on um, uh, our, our Black Lives Matter issue. And we want to welcome back Coach George Raveling. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. You are, man. You look great. Um, you know, Coach, I can't help but think um, with, with the passing of, of Congressman Lewis and, uh, and then getting to talk to you today, I, I really think you, you've had the same kind of impact in our world of sports and um and i i look back at him standing beside martin luther king and uh i, I have to start with i think one of the most amazing stories i ever heard is your relationship with Mar dr martin luther king and and you being there and i believe it was august 28th 1963 mm -hmm. um at his his i have a dream speech if you could share that story with everyone, please. It's one of the greatest stories ever told. It, 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 it's, it was, uh, uh, the circumstances were a, a true miracle. I, I, I graduated in 1960 from Villanova, so three years later, I'm, I end up working as a security guard at the, at the march on, on Washington. And uh, and end up with the actual uh, original speech that that uh, King had on the podium with it. Uh, to, to give you a, a little uh, backdrop on 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 the march on Washington, there's a a, a thought that uh, King organized that uh, Reverend King organized, but it really wasn't. It was a guy named Byron Rustin, who, interesting enough, uh, Jay. The original march on Washington was set for 1941, but it never got off the ground. But the interesting thing about Byron Rustin is he was born and raised in Westchester. He was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and he spent a part of his education at Cheney State. So they, wow. there's a lot of, uh, of uh, relevance to, to his contribution in that. And um, it, it, when, when they had the March on Washington, they had over a quarter of a million uh, attendees. What I found extraordinary was that the government and, and President Kennedy were, they were extremely nervous about this. This was gonna be the largest gathering of black people in the history of America in one spot. And obviously it, it made the White House nervous and they had over 5,000 troops and police on alert. They had, they had full brigades uh, it, 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 and over in Virginia at the military uh, installations in case, uh, uh, demonstrations broke out and it was also fascinating that they had over 3,000 media covering the March on Washington and we're talking about 1963. Wow. And um, 
it, it drew a litany of, of, of celebrities. The one person I find fascinating that his name never comes up when they talk about those people who attended the March on Washington was sitting on the dais was Jackie Robinson was, was present there. Wow. And, and, uh, oh, and uh, uh, Harry Belafonte, a lot of, of celebrities, James Baldwin. And so the, what happened, Jay, on a Thursday night, I'm down in Claymont, Delaware. My best friend, his dad was a very prominent dentist, uh, maybe the most prominent black person in the state of Delaware at that time. His name was Dr. Woodrow Wilson, and he lived in Claymont. And so his son, Warren, was my best friend, and I'd gone down there for dinner. And we were having dinner, and the, the TV was on the background, and, the, and the, uh, the news was being dominated about the march on Washington. And so Dr. Wilson said to us, are you guys going? And we said, no. And he said, why? And we gave him the adolescent excuse. Uh, we don't, we don't have any money or way to get there. <laughs> and so, and, and in his infinite wisdom, he must've known that this was going to be a special moment in time. So he said, to, uh, well, you guys can take one of the cars and, and, and I'll give you the money, but you guys should definitely go. And so we ended up that next Friday going down uh, to Washington. We drove down. We found a, a, a motel room on New York Avenue. At that time, there was only one way in and one way out going north uh, in, uh, to D.C., and that was through Route 1. And so yeah. Route 1 emptied right into New York Avenue, as you know, and we found a place, and we decided let's go down to the monument grounds and just get a feel for what it's going to be like. And when we were down there that Friday evening, uh, as we're walking around, we run into a, a, a black gentleman and he says, hey, are you guys coming to the, the, the march tomorrow? And we said, yes. And he said, would you guys be interested in volunteering? We need extra help. We're going to have way more people than we ever thought. So we said, yeah, what, do you, what, what would we do if we volunteered? And so he said, well, we're going to have to almost double the security. So we would put you in a security uh, brigade. And so he told us to come down the next morning uh, about 8.30. We, got a little, we were there a little early and we found him. He looked at us, both six, four guys. And so he said, well, we're going to put you up on the podium. We need big, strong guys uh, up there. <laughs> And so that was how we ended up getting on the podium. And they had a, a, a plan uh, if something happened uh, to get the celebrities and the speakers out the back of Lincoln Memorial. And so uh, a little bit of the backstory is that the organizers were, were, were very uh, committed to not having any violence or demonstrations. And uh, one of the things that they did is they, they put a limit on how long you could speak and, 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 and your speech had to be approved. And, and so that brings us to the, uh, the topic of the day, John Lewis. John Lewis at that time was 23 years old and he was the first speaker. But as, if you read much about it, they, uh, they made, uh, uh, John Lewis changed his speech 11 times, right up until five minutes before he was to step in front of the podium, they were still taking stuff out of his speech. And so, so and it, as it turned out, uh, Rustin and A. Philip Randolph and one of the other uh, leaders, if you look in the picture when Lewis is speaking, they're standing right behind him because they were prepared to remove him from the podium if he got, <laughs> if he got too emotional. And, and, and so uh, James Baldwin was supposed to speak, and he submitted his speech, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't let him speak unless he changed it. And Baldwin said, hey, if, I, if I'm speaking, you got to take it the way it comes, and if that's not good enough, then fine, I'm not going to speak. So they wouldn't let Baldwin speak. Wow. And so, so now we fast forward to uh, Martin Luther King's speech. And uh, he had to submit a speech also that had to be approved by the committee. And so uh, when King began to speak, he spoke from, it, from his, his, his prepared speech. 
and he continues to go through and you could if with audio and you put it up against the, the, the copy that I have it's word for word until he gets down right before the last uh, paragraph that conclude and as King uh, starts to close he actually has the crowd mesmerized people are just uh, I mean it, it's like it's like a Sunday morning at a black Baptist church man they, he got he as, as we would say he has everybody in the amen corner <laughs> and so so as he's getting ready to, to come to the con, uh, concluding paragraph you hear a female voice say tell him what the uh, about the dream Martin tell him about the dream and the, the voice is Mahalia Jackson, who most black people would feel was the greatest gospel singer of all time. And she sang at a lot of King's uh, rallies and she had heard King do the I Have a Dream uh, piece in Selma. And she also heard him do it at uh, Aretha Franklin's dad's church in Detroit. So King was, was, was in the moment. So even though he knew that he was gonna go overtime and this hadn't been approved, he just ad-libbed right into the I Have a Dream piece. Wow. And, and, uh, and of course, that became the most famous part of the speech, but it really was never in the original speech at all. He ad-libbed all that in. There's no word in, in the speech that you have it's not written in there anywhere? No, no, because it was never intended to be in there. He ad-libbed wow. that in. And so, and, 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 and that was at the, you know, he, he was feeling the moment and then Mahalia said, hey, tell him about the dream. She, for some reason, she knew if, 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 he, if he used that portion uh, uh, and of the speech, it was gonna, it was gonna bring every, everybody out, out of their stance. And yeah. so when it's over, uh, as he's concluding, we were told the, the, the security to, to start to move in toward the, the podium uh, so that we can get the uh, people out the back of the Washington, I um, mean, the Lincoln Memorial. And, and the last speaker was a rabbi who was going to do the benediction. And, and as King is done, the place goes wild. And if there was ever going to be a moment of escalation and demonstration, it was going to be then, but it didn't. And so <laughs> the rabbi says to King, he says, Dr. King, that's the greatest speech I ever heard. And then he does the benediction. And as King is, is starting to move away from the podium, he folds the speech and, 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 he's, and he's turning uh, to his left. And, and I say, as I closed in, I said, Dr. King, can I have that copy? Why I said that, I have no idea. I wish I had an exotic story to say how I had this whole thing planned. But, it, and so he handed it to me. And actually, and there's a documentary that CBS did on it. And it shows King's uh, hand in the speech uh, to me. And then it was, it, it was over. And the delegation went to the White House. And when they walked into the Oval Office, President Kennedy said to, to uh, Dr. King, Dr. King, I'd loved your I Have a Dream speech. And so the media immediately picked up on it and called and, and put a title on it. If you look at the original speech, it does not have a title. And so the, so the media uh, addressed it as the I Have a Dream speech based on Kennedy's reaction. And so that became the the I have a dream speech and I had it for for easily over 40 years and uh and no one knew it uh you know um, one time in a speech Malcolm X said that that history is best situated to reward all man's deeds and so my interpretation is history will put things in their rightful perspective but it took 50 years for it and <laughs> so I, I had so that I wouldn't forget where it was, uh, Jay. My senior year at Villanova, I played in the East-West All-Star game in Kansas City. And, and so when we were there, they took all the players out to uh, Independence, Missouri to meet President Truman. And, and he talked with us and, uh, and at the end, on the way out, he had just written a two volume 
a, a book on the uh, on on his administration and and so he, they were stacked up on a table on uh, right as you go out of the the uh, he had his office was like a, a replica of the Oval Office wow. and so in the book he he personally autographed each copy to each one of the players and so I actually should have been a little bit more mindful and I could have shown you the book here on the screen but of the two books so in, in there it just says uh uh to george h traveling from harry s truman and it, and it has the year and best wishes and so i put the speech inside of there because i knew i would never throw those books away because right. how many people could say they have a, a, a an autographed copy uh personally to you from the president of the united states and so it's set in there for years and you could see that crease marks in, in, on, on the pages. And so then when I got to the University of Iowa and took the head job, uh, a, they sent a reporter down to do a story on me. In those days, almost all of the newspapers uh, had a Sunday edition and a Sunday edition was a magazine section. So they were gonna do a cover story on, on me being the first black coach at Iowa and so forth. When the reporter came down and was interviewing me, he, he kind of hit me with one of those throwaway questions. He said, were you ever involved in the civil rights movement? And I said, well, sort of. And then I told him about the, about the march on Washington. And and literally, the guy, he he, he started to hyperventilate. You got this? Oh. And, and then he, so he, he said he wanted to see it. I had only been on been in Iowa for about four weeks so I hadn't unpacked all the boxes so we went down in the <laughs> basement and we found it and and when I showed it to him Jay he was literally shaking and he it. said oh god can I call up can I call our our, our our editor and they and they sent a photographer down and so that was the first time that there was any public consumption that I had the speech what year, but was, then that, still, what year was that Oh, I think I went to uh, Iowa around '83 because wow. I was, uh, uh, and, and it was it was right there in the beginning of that time, and so they wrote this 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 story, and then that was the first public utterance that I had it, but it still had not taken on its historic uh, uh, significance. It it took relatively about 50 years. And once we had Martin Luther King Day and uh, uh, th more and more uh, focus uh, uh, gathered on the March on Washington and, and, and the I Have a, uh, a Dream speech. And so over the course of time, uh, I, I've, I've ha I just have had it, uh, but never really thought that much about what I really had. And when the, the, the media start to, to take more and more uh, notice of it, particularly when it was Martin Luther King Day or Black History Month. And so my wife got a little nervous and she said, hey, I think you need to, 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 to get the speech out of the house and put it in the bank vault. She said, because you travel a lot and I, I'm, I would, I feel nervous. Somebody might try to break in the house to steal it. And then you need to say publicly that it's not in the house anymore. And, and it was, a, it was, a, 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 my wife was very concerned about it and she made me very concerned about it. And so we've uh, kept it in the, in the bank vault since then. Uh, a couple, we've had a couple people come out uh, who are the leading authenticators uh, of historic documents in the world have come out and, 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 and examined it and, and written a report on it. And, and so um, what, what ended up just being a, a, a random moment uh, ended up uh, allowing me to be in the possession of one of uh, 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 of history's uh, most famous documents. That that's exactly um, that's perfectly put because it it really isn't even you know. There's been documentaries done. I, I've seen them, you know, on you and and this story and and the speech. But but now you know as you know, John Lewis passes away and, and, and Black Lives Matter movement, it even even more valuable and so 
so smart of your wife to get that out of the house. Yeah. Could you imagine now? Oh my, oh, my. God. Oh, good. It makes me, I, I worry about you. Good. I'm happy. Well, well and now because of technology, people have a, a, a more availability into your personal life. You can Google and find out where I live. And yeah. it, 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 we, we've surrendered a lot of our, of our individual liberties to technology. And it, it's something that concerns me. I, I, I I'm a, I'm, I'm overly conscious about about giving out my my uh, my cell phone number and I'll, but more importantly is my social security number and because the, once a person gets some of that information they can make a, a major invasion into your the privacy of your lives and that and and then once it doesn't it, I have to think of the other people my other my wife my children. Uh, I have to, I have to be conscious of them too in their lives. So, uh, but we we've we've uh, ne negotiated through it well. And uh, the the one thing I realized uh, once it became public was I was going to have to be very discriminating about what uh, opportunities I I, I uh, accepted. For example, I never wanted anybody to feel like I was using the King's speech for my, to, to make myself look better or, 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 and I, 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 every year around the Black History Month, I probably get 50 to 70 uh, speaking engagements and, 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 and I would say 90% of them offer money, but I, I just can't do it because I, I, I feel that it, it would be a, a, a violation of my responsibility. It, 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 in a way, I kind of feel like it would be saying, uh, the money's more important to me. And that I, I don't, so I, I just have never done it and tried to take advantage of it. But at some point, we'll have to move on because if for no other reason than, than, than the tax obligations on it. Wow, what an amazing story, Coach. I, I, you know, and I think for you at, at that age, um, you know, in, in 1963, you're probably like 24, 25. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and there, you know, there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about your life, but it, we're, we're trying to share with Villanova people all the different perspectives of, of, of Black people in the history of Villanova, you know, and with our students that we're having on our podcast, our black student athletes, Randy Foy, Alan, Randy Foy, and Kerry Kittles, and Ed Pickney, and that generation, and then your generation, um, which is which is so powerful, your story. I, I know you're humble about this, but at, after that time in 63, you became the first black assistant coach at Villanova, the first black assistant coach in the ACC when you went to University of Maryland. Maryland, the first head black head coach in the Pac-12, the first black head coach at the University of Iowa. When you went to USC, were you the first black head coach there also? And, and, and basketball, yes. And so just, I mean, I know it was probably yeah, natural yeah, for the, you, but what, what did the, that mean for you at that time? Was that pressure on you? How, how did that I, impact you each step of the way? I, I think a lot is overt, uh, but uh, what what it meant when you're the first, it, 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 it you 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 carry a, you, you you the first thing is you're draped in other people's expectations, and 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 so early on you get trapped into trying to prove the people that you can coach. You try to, uh, you get trapped into seeking uh, validation from others. Uh, you you come to a point when when the stark cold reality is that I cannot fail because if I fail, then I fail. I've I've failed those who come after me. They're not going to get the the opportunity. Uh, I I had uh, in in seventy two. I had I interviewed for three jobs, uh, Georgetown, 
the finalists for the Georgetown job was John Thompson, Morgan Wooten, and myself. And John got the job, rightfully so. And then I interviewed for the for the Cincinnati job, and uh, and uh, and I interviewed. Well, I didn't. Well, I guess it was an interview. They actually told me before the interview that I had the job, and then Washington State. And and Jay, when you you stop and 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 put things in a historic context. At that time, it was the Pac-8. There were only eight schools in the league. The two Arizonas and, and uh, obviously uh, Utah and uh, Colorado weren't in the league. And so if you look at the, the geographic location of Washington State, it's in Pullman, Washington, which is right on the border of the state of Washington and Idaho. It's in a, it's in a, a rural farming community. They had had no black players when I went there. Uh, and it probably should have been the last place in the league that uh, would hire a black coach, if nothing else, just in, based on geography. So it, it, it was a, a, a great opportunity for me uh, at Washington State. I think the reason I, I succeeded at Washington State was because of our president and our athletic director. I, I've always said to young coaches that that uh, the two most important people on, on your campus is the president and the athletic director because they have the hands on the steering wheel of your life. And so I, when I interviewed for the job, uh, the, the athletic director, uh, told me bef before uh, I even went in the interview, hey, this is your job to, to, to turn down. You're, you're going to get the job. You just go in this interview and just go through through the the, the, the ritual, but they're not going to have anything to say, Dr. Terrell and I have already decided that you're our guy. Right. And when I went in to speak with the president, uh, uh, I, I, he was, he was, uh, he just captured me with this, with this graciousness and sincerity. The one thing I always remember him saying to me, Jay, was when I was walking out, he said, he said, Coach Ravlin, he said, I got all the faith in the world that you're our guy and you're going to get it done. He said, I want to tell you one thing, though. I'll never be there when you're winning. I'll always be there when you're losing. And that was the kind of guy he was, and he was the pre. I might have stayed at Washington State and just retired, but when he decided to step down, I now been the head coach there eleven years. And when he called me and said, "Hey, come on over to the house, I want to talk to you," so I drove over, and he told me, he said, "Hey, at the end of the semester, I'm going to retire." And he said, "Don't worry about it." He said, "You're going to be all right. I, I've already got the legal people working on your contract. We're going to put five more years on there. It'll be it, it'll be worded. No matter who comes in, they won't be able to touch you." And that that was just the kind of guy he was. And and so hey, let's uh, let's do this. Let's let's hold right there at Washington State. Eleven years, right, Coach? Yeah. Let's hold right there at Washington State. I want to. Take a break, Mike. Take us out, and I want to come back and go to Iowa. We'll pause here. You're listening to Talking Villanova Basketball, presented by Hartford Funds. Back with more with co-traveling after this. When Mother Nature strikes, count on your certaintyed roof to perform. That's the commitment we've made to homeowners for more than 100 years. For roofing you can rely on, look no further than Certainteed. To find a Certainteed credentialed contractor near you, visit CertainTeed.com. This is a shout-out to the professional tailgaters, game day grillers, and potluck pros. Whether you bake it, smoke it, stack it, or melt it, there's nothing more important about how you cook up your team spirit while serving it with an ice-cold Coca-Cola, Coke Zero Sugar, or Coke Life. We may not all agree on the best game day foods, but when you serve your meals with a Coke you know you've got yourself a winner. Coca-Cola. Taste the feeling. ExxonMobil and Dunn Manning, proud sponsors of Villanova Wildcat Athletics. This podcast is brought to you by Hartford Funds, a leading asset manager based in Wayne, Pennsylvania. 
While other investment management companies measure performance against the S&P 500, Hartford Funds has a different measure of success, investor satisfaction. Hartford Funds, our benchmark is the investor. J.J. White Incorporated is the single-source, multi-trade contractor for your next construction project. Since 1920, J.J. White Incorporated has been constructing with knowledge and providing service with integrity and safety. Visit J.J. White online at jjwhiteinc.com. Are you looking for something imprinted or embroidered? If so, let Campus Clothes help you get the look. Whether your team is in the corporate office or on the athletic field, Campus Clothes can supply your team with all its needs. Visit us on the web at campusclothes.com or give us a call at 215-357-0892. You may not play well, but you will always look good. If you think your debit card can't help you with your financial game, you're probably not using the red key. Introducing EasyUp by KeyBank, the tool that helps you reduce debt by setting $1 aside from your checking account every time you use your debit card. Automatically racking up savings and paying down debt with EasyUp. It's how you make financial progress. KeyBank is member FDIC and the exclusive retail bank of Villanova Athletics. NovaCare, the exclusive provider of physical therapy to Villanova. The Wildcats choose NovaCare. So can you. We are back talking Villanova basketball presented by Hartford Funds with Coach Jay Wright. And we resume our fascinating conversation with Coach George Raveling in 1983, as I recall. Yeah, I tell you, Mike, I could do this forever, as you know. It's good to be back. And Coach, when we, when we broke, we were towards the end of your career, at, uh, towards the end of your career at Washington State because the, the president was retiring. And, and then you went to Iowa, but you know we're talking about the, the, the these days right now and the and the difficulties that 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 black people still face to this day. At, at that time, then, so we we were talking around 1983, as Mike said. Yeah. And you're in Western Washington State. No, no, Washington. Eastern Washington. Uh, excuse me, you're right, absolutely right. Eastern Washington State and Idaho, and then go to Iowa as a black man at that time, what, I mean, that really, that had to be uncomfortable. And, and it's certainly, there, there weren't a lot of black people living in those areas at that time, I got to assume. Now, what's interesting, I, I was so naive about, about my circumstances as it relates to, 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 to race. Uh, I can remember uh, the first three uh, booster club meetings I went to when I was at Washington State. The same thing was true at Iowa. There had never been a black person in the town before. And, <laughs> and, so, and, and, and uh, so I end up, I, I leave Washington State to go to Iowa. And at the time, um, the athletic director was uh, Sam Jankovich. He he was he was leaving also, and so now I'm going to be if I stay on at Washington State, I'm going to I'm going to ha- have a president and and an athletic director, none of whom are invested in me, and so I, I and then Iowa offered me the job and uh, and uh, I I felt it was probably time to move on. And and um, so Bump Elliott was the uh, excuse was me, the, but how like how is a a black man from Washington D.C. going to school in Philadelphia? What do you do socially in Pullman, Iowa? Survive for years. <laughs> seriously, seriously, eleven. That, that's years? what I. That most of my early coaching, uh, Jay, was 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 about survival. I couldn't. I knew. I couldn't fail because it, it, uh, it was going to make it so much more difficult for, for someone, th- those people that come behind me to, uh, uh, to have an opportunity. So, you know, I, I, every, every day I was carrying their, their future with me also. And so I, then, I, I had to succeed. And then what about and, Iowa had to be the same way, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, what was interesting, Jay, uh, 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 about uh, both of those circumstances, I don't r recall any overt racism at either place. Maybe it was because there wasn't enough of us to, to really be a, a, a threat or, or concern. But at, at Iowa, um, I, I, once again, the same thing. I had a great president and I had a great athletic director and, and they were extremely uh, supportive of, uh, of me. And, and uh, so at, at Iowa, in many ways, Jay, I look back and I think I made him a guy probably should have stayed. I, I think what happened was I really couldn't see myself coaching at Iowa for 10 years. Uh, uh, I just, because I had so much that I had to, to uh, compromise to, 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 to do it. It was, there was no racism or anything like that. It was just a fact of life. If I needed a haircut, I had to go to Chicago. If I wanted anything black, I had to go to Chicago. If I wanted the late, latest jazz album, I had to go to Chicago. That was the closest place where, where, where there was an abundance of black people. Right. And it wasn't anything that racially that drove a divide. I knew what I was getting into when I took the job. It's just that I couldn't, it wasn't going to be sustainable for me. And, uh, were, and, uh, you were you married at that time? When you were uh, no, no, at that time I wasn't. Ah, and, okay. uh, and so that, that was the other, the other piece, you know. So it, 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 it challenges all rolled up into one. And I started to, to, to question uh, the sustainability of it. It wasn't, I, I, I made a bad mistake when I left. I think I didn't really clearly explain why I left. And a lot of people uh, to this day uh, uh, tie race to it. There was not one time when, when I felt I'm going to leave. Well, in a way, I guess it was because I, I, I couldn't really uh, live a, a full life as a black person. But that wasn't a, a, that much of a, of a concern to me. But I couldn't. It was a concern in this sense that I knew it wasn't sustainable. And so when I decided to, to leave, uh, to take the job at USCJ, uh, Bump Elliott was the athletic director and just a, a, a gem of a human being. He did something, Jay, that left an indelible mark on my memory. He, he came over to my house uh, the night before I was gonna make the decision and, and tried to talk me into staying. And I just, I said, I said, Bump, I just, it's nothing you did. It's not the fans. It's not the, the program. It, it, I just feel like I need to change. I, I, I just need to, to kind of figure out who I really am at this point in my life. And he understood, but right before he left, Jay, he, when he came and uh, 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 he had a white pad in his hand. So right before he said, uh, he said, coach, before I go, I just need to ask you to do something for me. I said, okay. He, he hands me the pad and a pen. And he says, write on this pad how much money you have to have to stay. And whatever figure you put on there, that will be your salary. I promise <laughs> you, whatever figure you put on there, that will be your salary. And I said, Ray, this is not, I'm not, it's not about money. I'm not trying to get more money from you. Uh, but, but that was a... Uh, would have been interesting if I'd have put what if I'd have written something on there, but it wasn't about money. <laughs> that, and so and then, then from there I moved on to USC. Yeah, and and um, again first head basketball coach at USC and a great career there, great teams. But I, I mean I, I'd love to go through the basketball part, but you know after a, 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 a real serious car accident, um, again we could go into that, but I want to I want to get to the the, um, the 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 part about being an executive at Nike now you know a, a black executive um, at Nike and, and and one of the the first high level as the director of uh, international basketball 
what 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 type of responsibilities did, did that take on as a as a black man? Well, what was interesting, Jay, at that point, I was seventy, I was sixty-two years old. So, what wow. are the chances of a a sixty-two-year-old black ex-college basketball coach uh, run the second biggest division at at Nike? Uh, the biggest division is running. And, but part of it was that I had such a, 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 a unique uh, relationship with Nike. In 1975, I was one of the original 11 college coaches that signed to endorse Nike's uh, footwear. And uh, Phil Knight and, and John Slusher Sr., they met us in, uh, in uh, Las Vegas, and, they, uh, and uh, Val Vano was in that group, uh, Hugh Dorm, a bunch of... Uh, uh, of the, the coaches, but 11 of us agreed to endorse their product. And so the deal was you could get 5,000 in cash or 5,000 in stock. And I was sitting beside Bill Foster, the one that uh, coached at, at Clemson and, and Charlotte and so forth. He, he, he leaned over and, and nudged me, says, George, if you're going to do it, Take the stock. Don't take the cash. Yeah, I'll explain to you later. And then later he told me, he said, those guys are all going to be stupid. He said, the, <laughs> the $5,000 you're going to – oh, one caveat, if you took the $5,000, uh, I mean, if you took the stock, you couldn't cash it for five years. And so, anyway, I ended up taking this, the stock. And, <laughs> and, and so that was the start of my journey with Nike from 75 on forward. So that year um, – the uh, uh, Nike sent Bill Foster, myself, and Eddie Sutton to Europe. Uh, I mean, sorry, to China to do clinics for a month. And wow. so we t we were off in, in, in China doing basketball clinics in, in, uh, in Shanghai. And, and, uh, and, um, and at that time, Beijing didn't exist. Beijing was Peking. Okay. Wow. And so we did a clinic there. And so that one day we go to the Tenement Square, just as sightseers, and, and Bill Foster's wife had a Polioid camera and she was taking some pictures. And so a, a crowd of Chinese people started to, to, to circle us and were, and were looking at us. And little did I know that I was the, I was the, the, the object of their real interest. And so they're, they're standing there talking to each other in Chinese. I, I have no idea what they're saying. And an elderly gentleman, Jay, steps out of the crowd and he comes up to me and he, and he goes, and, 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 and I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't insulted. What I, I, I finally realized this dude never saw a black person before. Wow. He thought I was painted. Oh he thought that was paint. And that's oh why I was rubbing my skin to see if it, if it came off or not. Because oh he had never God. seen a, a black person before. Wow. And so that was uh, that was uh, 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 the one of few times when I realized that there are people out there who've never seen a black person before, <laughs> and incredible. and and so I the, the the thing with Nike continued to grow over the years, and then finally at at age sixty two, uh, I <laughs> I had this opportunity uh, to take on an executive role, and. I used to, there was times when I think, God, you know, I get this business degree from, from Villanova. I'm probably never going to use any of this again, but uh, my, my Villanova education started to kick in then because <laughs> now all of a sudden I've got, a, I'm not coaching people. Uh, I'm, I'm coaching them, but in a different way. But I, I, I now I had to, to be a business leader. And there were times in the early year when I really, for one of the few times in my life ever doubted myself. And I really, the, the, the people I work with at Nike, they were insanely uh, intelligent and, and, and uh, there was so much to learn. And I, I, early on, I didn't have the confidence to the point where I went to the person I re, uh, reported to, Adam Helfant, who's the senior VP. And I told him, I said, Adam, I think you made a mistake. I, I'm not the guy for this job. I, I should, uh, uh, I, I think you need to get someone better than me in there. And he, he wouldn't, he said, oh, you're, I got the right guy. And, and, I, and he just said, hey, look, here's the deal. Why don't you do this for the next 30 days? When you, and the, 
leave a yellow pad on your on your desk when you, in the morning. When you come in every morning, I want you to do this and I want you to keep the pages. You write down the date and the three most important things that you have to get done that day. And he says, and you start at the top and you don't go to two until you got one done and so forth. And he says, and then I want you to save those. And so I started doing that every day. I come in, I'd write down what was the most important thing I had to do. And his idea was, how many people you think at Nike get the most important thing they have to do done every day? If you do this, you'll be doing a hell of a job. And so he kind of nursed me along and pep talked me along until I got over to self-doubt and, 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 and it started to become fun. And, and I spent, uh, so I had a, a, a good ride on that uh, for five. I told them that I would only do it for five years. Right. And, and, and then I, I, I felt they needed to get someone younger in there. But the, 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 the time I spent at Nike to me was like going to Harvard Business School. I learned every day was a learning opportunity. It, and it had such an, an amazing impact on, on my growth at that level to be 62 years old, an ex-college basketball coach, a black one, and, and to still have some relevance in life. And, and that's where I, I think I, I, I am now, Jay, is uh, for me, it's all about surviving and thrive. As an 83-year-old, a, a black man, I'm, I'm done with the days of chasing money and chasing success. I, I, right now, what I today is knowledge. And, and, and I try to find the answer to this question, uh, what is it that I don't know, but I need to know to remain relevant in this ever-changing society that we're in? And I, I worry from a, a black standpoint how relevant black people are going to be as we continue to move into the, to, to the, uh, into the future. Some, from time to time, I ask some of my friends, uh, name the, the five greatest leaders on the globe, and none of them can be a, a corporate executive. And I have yet to get anybody who can get past three. And so it tells me there's an absence of, of leadership, particularly courageous leadership, uh, on on the globe today and the other question that i'll ask some of my friends is who speaks for for black people in the old days you could say king or malcolm or baldwin or someone today that's 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 the uh, a sixty-four thousand dollar question who speaks for black people and maybe the answer is no one needs to speak black people can speak for themselves but I, I, I'm, 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 I'm trying as hard as I can to be self-aware of, of how I can stay relevant as an 83-year-old uh, black person. And, and, and it, it's, it's a challenge to, 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 because your values change. You have to constantly reinvent re yourself. And, and the, the, the greater challenge for, for most of us, black or white, is that we live in a world where every single day someone's trying to make you be someone you don't want to be. And to me, that's the greatest competition of all is to be a free person, free of other people's expectations and validations. And to me, the most important validation at 83 is my self-validation, not the validation of someone else. I'm, I'm beyond chasing money. I'm beyond chasing success. I just, right now, what's important to me is to be a free man, not free black man, but just a free human being, free to, to do the things that I want to do and not become enslaved to what other people want me to do or to become who other people want me to be. Coach, I think you, man, I, I'm speechless. You, you just hit on every possible topic. And as I, I don't wanna 
I don't want to end it any other way. I, I want to end it with that. That is so beautiful. That's so perfect. And uh, let, let's do it again, Coach. Okay. There's so, there's so much more, and I, I just want to leave you with, you are as relevant in our world of coaching and, and, um, and amongst our young people on our team. Um, I'm on a committee with John Calipari and Mark Few and Tom Izzo and Jim Beheim and John Thompson Jr. And they all count on you for advice and knowledge and guidance and can't be more relevant in our business than that. I know people at Nike still do. And um, you're just doing it, man. You just just keep getting it done. Let me me ask in my part by saying this. Here's a, here's a question for you to share with your, your next audience. James Baldwin asked this question many years ago. How can we make color obsolete? And that'll be my, my ending statement. How can we make color obsolete? James Baldwin. Amen. Take it away, Mike. We thank George Rappling for a fascinating conversation. We look forward to talking with you next time. Matt Alert for this episode of Talking Villanova Basketball presented by Hartford Funds. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Just a reminder, you can follow Coach Wright on Twitter at VUCoachJWright. You can also follow Villanova Basketball at NovaMBB on Twitter and Instagram. We'll have alerts posted on those accounts whenever a new podcast is available for download. Or you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. And for more great content, check out the web home of the Wildcats, Villanova.com. For our producer, Matt Fraschilla, this is Mike Sheridan saying thanks again for stopping by. We look forward to having you join us again next time for the Talking Villanova Basketball podcast presented by Hartford Funds. Stop by Great American Pub, Bar, and Grill with locations in Conshohocken, Wayne, and Phoenixville. If you're looking for fine food in a casual atmosphere, Great American Pub is the place for you. Come out to Great American Pub for great food, great times, and great fun. For more information, visit us at www.greatamericanpub.com.